If it weren't for that old lighthouse, where would this ship be? You know, the, the passion of much of my own personal walk with Christ and how to live out my faith and share my faith especially has been in the area of apologetics and world religions and trying to understand where people are coming from, not to agree with them, but to find bridges into their understanding of truth or their ideas. I don't know that they have much understanding because the reality is Psalm 36, 9 says, in your light, we see light. There is darkness outside the person and work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And uh, tonight, as we look into this next passage in chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 12 of John's gospel. Again, John chapter 8, verse 12, we're going to read there in just a moment. But, you know, one of the things we need to understand, I think, tonight is that the certainty is that light can exist without darkness. Okay? You don't have, what, what, in fact, if you were to define darkness, what is it? It's the absence of light. You can have cold, but you have to have heat to know what cold is. And you can have heat without cold because cold is the absence of heat. And tonight I want to share with you that we have been given the light of the world in Jesus Christ. And apart from him, it's darkness. I had a, an individual call me this week concerned about a relative who was reading some, a book and she, taught, she called the name of the book and I'm familiar with the title and, and she said, I, I did some research on the, the author and he's not a believer. And well, you know, non-believers write books too. Uh, not being sarcastic to the lady, obviously, but, but just uh, was concerned and, and uh, wanted to know a little more about what she found out. She said, well, you know, he espouses Buddhism. I said, well, yes, ma'am, I I had understand that, stood that about the author as well. I said, now, the book that you're referring to is not a theological or a religious book by say. It's actually a business book, a leadership book. But let me assure you that in his understanding from a non-believer, non-Christian perspective, his ideas about how to get things done is more about manipulation and power and leverage than it is about a servant leadership that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, we have to be careful in any area, even if it's not a strictly devotional book, a religious book, or a book about true religion. Uh, the reality is we have to be careful. We have to be discerning. And the only way we can do that is if we know what is true. If we're enlightened by the light of the world, then we can begin to see not only what light there is up around us, but also we can identify and discern the darkness. This, more, this afternoon, excuse me, I know what time of day it is. Uh, chapter, <laughs> believe me, I've been up a while. Uh, I've got five grandchildren and two children, and my wife, besides me in that house, there's no time to waste. Uh, somebody said, how do you teach your children to have a quiet time? Well, you beat them up. <laughs> I'll give Grant Gaines credit for that. I'm not saying you physically assault them. I'm saying you get up before they do. And so I've been up a while. It was dark when I uh, got up. It'll be dark when I get home. So uh, that is, uh, that's, I know what time it is, okay? And it's time to get going. Then Jesus said again to them, or spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Three things I want to share with you as we begin tonight. First of all, in the, your outline there, if you're taking notes, the son's affirmation. The son's affirmation. What does he affirm about himself? He says, first of all, I am the light, not a light. I am the light. Now, we're going to read later at the end of his earthly ministry, while he's even in the throes of being uh, ready to be offered up as a sacrifice for you and me, that last night here, he tells in John chapter 14, he's just reminded them, I've been telling you I'm going to go away. Now is the time. At the end of chapter 13, the Paul just settles on that upper room, and Jesus Christ begins to understand these guys are 
they're, they're, they're grieving, and, and I don't want them to be overwhelmed with grief. And so he says, in, beginning in chapter 14 and verse 1, that they should not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged. You believe in God, believe also in me. Okay? Well, at the end of that passage that we begin to see movement out of the upper room and then into the, uh, through the valley uh, toward the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. So we're moving toward that moment, even in this passage in chapter 8. But I want to tell you, there are words that mean or very clearly a different perspective or share a different perspective than what the world wants. Many will say, well, you know, Jesus was a good man and he is a good way to live your life. No, he's the only way. The, the definitive article, the, there in chapter 14, verse 6, is not a random insertion by an editor. It is God's word through God's Son at the moment it was spoken. It was revealed, it was brought back to John's memory when he was dictating it onto paper. But the reality is, you and I need to understand, Jesus Christ is not just a light. He's not just a path. He's not just a way. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That's who he is. By, that's his character. That's his person. Okay? It's, it, he cannot be anything but. When we talk about God's love, I want to be, be sure to tell you God is love. John would write that in his letters. First John is repeatedly full of the idea that Jesus Christ is love incarnate. But let me share with you. His love is holy love. His grace is loving grace, but it is also just grace. His love is, is interacted and intermeshed with all the other characteristics of his life. Yes, we're gracious, excuse me, we're grateful that he is so gracious to us. But we can't assume upon God's goodness and love and, and uh, benevolence and say, well, you know, God is so good that, you know, he understands I'm just human and I, I do these things, but it's okay because he is love. <laughs> Parker Crouch had a different idea. Parker's my dad, okay? My brother and I knew that my dad loved us. I think they loved him more than me. But anyway, that's a therapy session that I didn't mean to bring up. <sighs> well, the reality is my dad loved his sons. And he loved us enough that when we stepped beyond stated, clearly defined boundaries, he didn't move the fence a little further and say, oh, that's okay, boys. Y'all just do what, you, you know, I'll we'll give you a little more latitude. No, 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 no. That, that fence, that parameter, that line that was not to be crossed did not move. And so he would routinely, especially when we were younger, he would apply the Board of Education to the seat of learning, and uh, we learned. <laughs> uh, we didn't do those kind of things again and again. Why? Because my dad had a godly, truth-based love. He knew that his job was not raising boys, that his job was raising men who would follow after God. And men take responsibility. They know the parameters. They know the, the limits. And they are not looking to, for ways to satisfy their own desire to their own destruction. And so we have to teach children that early. When Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world, what we're saying is, as the psalmist wrote in 36.9, we know what light is. We know what good is. We can see truth. We can see what is real and authentic as we look through the lens of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world. Now look with me again in verse 12, very quickly. You know, we're already listening slowly, so let's speed that up, okay? <laughs> he who follows me will not walk in darkness. Now listen, folks, that is not a, that is not a hard, I mean, there, there's deep theological truth there, but it is not hard to discern. If you are following the light... You do not walk in darkness. When I, again, talking about my dad, reminds me, we went to uh, Cumberland Caverns up at McMinnville, Tennessee as I, when I was in Boy Scouts. 
And my dad was, was not an outdoorsman as such. He had, he had grown up on the farm. He knew how to fish and hunt and do those things. But he just wasn't bent toward that, to do it all the time. He wasn't spending all his weekends in the fall away from family and church and all that because he was hunting and those kind of things. And that wrinkles your brow, okay, God bless you, and you can come apologize afterwards. But the reality is, okay, God gave me a dad who wanted to be involved. And so we went up to Cumberland Caverns. Now, let me just share with you, a cavern is a dark place. And all us boys, we were trying to be brave scouts, but we were also wanting to make sure that no matter how far back in the line we were going through uh, those narrow passages, that we could see the light ahead of us. Why? Because we could discern what our next steps were. When you and I are following after the light, our next steps are far more clear than we are when we are trying to figure it out in the darkness of our own understanding. I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness. Now look with me in the last part of this verse. It says there, but will have the light of life. Not only is this a directional life, but this is a, a, a wonderful, delightful life. It is a life, a light that gives us not just direction, but it gives us sustenance. It, it rejoices our heart. It, it gives us meaning. It, we begin to see him for who he really is as we follow the light. We begin to affirm that God is not like I might have thought of him before. Again, I talked to a fellow uh, even today, and he had, you know, we're just getting started in this kind of uh, mentoring, counseling, communication. And, and as he was sharing just a few things, he was talking about his family of origin and one of you know early conversations that I typically have. And he had a dad who was human like the rest of us, but he, he had some particular proclivities that, that just that were annoying. They weren't, they weren't abusive, in, at least what I've seen thus far, but, but they were just annoying. And the boy was always set on edge. The verbal... Uh, kind of rhetoric that his father issued daily to this oldest of his children was just gnawing on this man's life. And it, and it really did alter. And I said, do you realize, sir, that we live in a fallen world? Oh, yes, I'm a believer. I, I, I have a daily quiet time. And I'm like, okay, I'll take that at face value. I said, do you realize that your father in heaven loves you, that he is not bent by sin like our earthly fathers are. He's not limited in his understanding. He's not limited in his love. He's not limited in his ability. He's not trying to overcome his own family of origin issues as he's fathering or parenting us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's perfect in every measure. He loves you. And you, especially as a grown, even maturing man, need to begin to think thoughts after him. You need to listen to the light you are reading more carefully. If you have a daily devotion, sir, you need to back, ask yourself the questions, the basic questions. What does this tell me about the God of the Bible? When you read a passage, what characteristic of God is being exhibited there? Because I'll guarantee you, God in heaven does not seek manners and, and opportunities to annoy, to irritate, and set his children on edge. He's the one who says, come boldly into my presence. Pray expectantly. Ask and it shall be given to you. And, and press down and flowing over. God is a good God. He's not like your dad in that respect. Now, I'm not bad-mouthing your father, sir, but... But the react because I don't even know him, and now and he mentioned well my father's already passed. Well, I'm not going to know him until eternity. But the reality is, you need to begin to reframe what you believe is true. God is not like anyone on earth. He's God alone. You and I need to affirm that. As I was even talking to him, I said, you know what. This passage lends itself to that reminder, and I want to share that tonight. And I want to share, you may also have a difficult family of origin situation. Your story may be far more difficult than even this man that I'm beginning to talk with, on, on, uh, at least on a limited basis, uh, as far as his willingness is concerned. 
But let me tell you, God isn't like your dad. He's not like your mother. God is the perfect parent. He knows when to love and to abound toward us and to give us and to comfort us and to speak peace into our lives. And he also knows when to take us to the woodshed. But he does... (laughs) God sets rules in the context of relationship. And thus, when he rains down judgment, it's not to destroy us, but to develop us. It's not to ruin us, but to show us what is right. You and I need to understand, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And those of us who are going to choose to walk and follow him will not walk in darkness. Because he's going because of our choice to follow him. He cannot betray himself. He will reveal himself to those who are seeking him. If you're walking with the Lord, if you're pursuing him, I will guarantee you, as the old Cajun cook used to say on PBS, that Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit and the Father are going to reveal what truth is. And you will see the world differently, no matter what age. No matter how long you've been a believer. No no concern about how long you've been a member of Bellevue Baptist Church. God is continually speaking truth into His children's lives, and He's never going to stop until we see Him face to face. Then we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. But until then, you and I need to be just anticipating God's going to have another lesson tomorrow morning for me to learn. Maybe before that. But his mercies are new every morning. And therefore, the material for our instruction is going to be new every morning as well. Look with me again. Not only do we see the son's affirmation about his person and about his provision that he's going to give us light to walk in, and that he, in his promise, says we will have the light of life. It'll, it'll, it's not just abundant life, new life in Christ. The life of Christ in us is not more of the same, folks. It is categorically, qualitatively different than what we had before. And if your life is not categorically, qualitatively different than the moment, that you met before, than the moment before you met Jesus Christ, then I want to share with you, walk toward the light. And further, if you've you've been walking or thought you were walking in the right direction and you still can look back months, years later and say, you know what, there's really still no difference between what I was before I professed Christ and what I, then let me talk with you before you leave tonight. Because I want to help you understand the gospel clearly. Not because, listen, you say, are you doubting my salvation? No, I'm saying if there is a change in your life, then Jesus has made it. If there's no change in your life, Jesus hasn't made it. And I want him to make it. My heart bleeds for that hope that you might have in him. I want to be a a conduit of his blessing in your life. And if there's a concern, if there's questions, if there's doubts and fears that you're living under the weight of, let me tell you, the light of the world wants to illuminate your heart and mind and spirit tonight. Scripture goes on to say, not only do we see the son's affirmation, but then we see the response. It's almost like we're entering into a four-round boxing match. Tonight's the first round. Uh, By the way, next week we're not meeting. We're going to be dark across the campus on Wednesday night, the 24th. So if you show up, you know, you can have silent prayer. Uh, uh, But we're not going to meet, but then we'll come back for three more weeks before the end of June. So the next three weeks after that, we'll be meeting. Uh, But uh, that having been said, we're going to be able to talk through this whole boxing match between the skeptics and the Savior. And in this first round, we see the son has said, listen, here's who I am. I'm the light of the world. And now, look with me in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. 
They made a statement of fact, but then they made an assumption that was false. First of all, they questioned his, the skeptics, they, in their, the, there in your notes, the, the skeptics' accusation. The skeptics, we see the, the son's affirmation, but now we see the skeptics' accusation. This is their first punch, if you will. And they say to him, you're testifying of yourself. That is, we don't believe your approach. If you have a leg to stand on, you're certainly not coming at this argument, this debate, this discussion about theological truth from a proper perspective because everybody knows that a person who, who is assuming that they have the right uh, to testify about themselves is already in the wrong because we know that if anything is true according to Jewish tradition and law it takes two or three witnesses to confirm a fact and you're on a, a theological a, a, a philosophical debate right now and you're under accusation and if you want to stand any time in this match this boxing match we're going to have here philosophically and theologically you're going to have to have a better approach than that everybody knows you need witness somebody else can tell us who you are, but you can't speak of yourself. Well, first of all, that assumes that the testimony of the one person about themselves is false. But Jesus is not just honest. He's not just accurate. Jesus Christ is truth incarnate. He's not just true even. He's truth. You see, some people will say, well, yeah, I believe Jesus. Why? Because they have some self-composed standard. They have a, a ruler that they measure everything, of whether they like it or not. You know, that, that's the idea of my truth, your truth. You live by your truth. I'm going to live by my truth. Folks, truth doesn't work like that. Truth is truth, period. You can either be blessed by it or you can be broken by it, but truth doesn't change person to person. And here we have these folks that are saying, accusing Jesus of, of a wrong approach because, uh, in, in essence, they're saying you have no, not only no right to say that, but you have no, no precedent. You have no uh, understanding of how to win a debate. We're going we're gonna to cream you, you know? It's, it's kind of like that boxing uh, tradition where they talk all this uh, 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 stuff and, and the arrogant, you know, jabs, the verbal jabs that they're doing before the, the uh, uh, round begins or they're kind of getting up close to one another and they start uh, talking to each other with the crowd all around them and just kind of trying to get into each other's head. That's what they're doing. So they're questioning his approach. You're not even on the level. If you meant to come to, to a, a, if you meant to come to a gunfight, you should have brought a gun, not a knife. I mean, that's, that's the kind of accusation they're making here. Second part of this statement in verse 13 says, again, read there with me. Not only is his, are they saying, accusing him of his approach being wrong, but also they're accusing him he has no authority. He has no right. Your testimony is not true. Is, not only have you come at this the wrong way, but what you're saying is wrong. Now, what did we quote out of Psalm 36, 9? In your light, we see light. These men were even in this initial statement saying to Jesus himself, as well as all those gathered around, we're fighting in the dark. We don't even know who he is. We don't have any concept of who we're up against. And therefore, we're making statements out of ignorance, out of a lack of awareness. There's been no insight in our spirit about who the one standing before us truly is. Your testimony is not true. But God, the Son, is truth incarnate. He cannot be anything but true. And what he's just said is, is as accurate as any statement ever made on planet earth. Jesus Christ is indeed the light of the world. And he does, to those who follow, give them light in which they can walk. And absolutely, they will not walk in darkness. 
but experience the light of life, a fundamentally different existence here on earth and certainly a different destiny in eternity. Scripture goes on. Jesus has listened to them, and now the, the bulk of our text this afternoon is in, beginning in verse 14, where Jesus responds very clearly, very frankly, very directly to these skeptics. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where, where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it. That is, I do have other witness that confirms what I say. But I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So I'm not unaware of the legal Deuteronomy law about having at least two witnesses to convict a person about any issue. But you understand that I and my Father are those witnesses, and our testimony is true. So as we begin to look at his response to their accusations, their, their, their onslaught, their insults, we see, first of all, the accuracy of his claims. He says again in verse 14, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. Now, listen, friends, that's not out of context. I keep telling you this last, almost we've been, what, nine, ten months going through John? You say, oh my goodness, you've been there that long? Some of you are coming back into this room and you've been doing other things through the couple of semesters. You say, you've only got to chapter 8 for nine months? Absolutely. It's deep and rich and wonderful. And, and still, why do we tell young believers, new believers, to read the book of John? Because it's, it's easy to, to get started in your walk with Jesus because of what's here. But it doesn't mean that the, even the most seasoned of us who have been walking with him can't be enriched by the study thereof. Scripture goes on to say here that he, his claim is true. And context in the, book of, of, in the books of the Bible, all of them, but here in John, last week we talked about the fact that they didn't realize that Jesus was the one who was born in Bethlehem. They did not affirm that. They did not understand. They didn't know where he was from and certainly didn't know where he was going. He knew where he was going. We're going to see that in a moment. But the reality is Jesus Christ was the most confident man who ever lived in the sovereignty of God's plan over his life. He said, listen, you don't, I, don't, I don't have to explain to you. He could have said, you know, y'all were talking a while ago and, and y'all didn't realize I was actually born in Bethlehem. He had no reason to defend himself, no call to defend himself. That wasn't it. Even if he had told them the facts, these men were blinded by their sin. They were living in darkness. And darkness isn't eradicated simply by more information. Darkness is eradicated by faith in the truth. The scripture here goes on to say the, the, the accuracy of his claim is he is truth. He is exactly who he said he is. And whether they realize it or not, he is that one born in Bethlehem. He is the promised one. He is the prophesied one. He is the Messiah that all had longed for for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Since Adam and Eve heard the proto-evangel about the seed of woman would be bitten on the heel by the seed of the serpent, but the seed of woman would crush the seed of the serpent's head. That's the first promise of a Savior. And ever since then, the Scriptures have recorded the unfolding promises and the multiplying promises that there would come the Savior. And now He's here, and His claim is true. It is accurate. Now look with me again. Not only the accuracy of His claims, but then we see in verse 15. Read there with me. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But... Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, 
for I am not alone in it, but I and the and the Father are, or excuse me, I and the Father who sent me. We're agreed. We are those dual witnesses. So again, we've talked about the fact that they have this this accurate claim before them. Then they they have such an absence of comprehension. They are the ones who the scripture would refer to, thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. They missed the thing right in the front of their face. The testimony of the living God come in flesh was right there in front of them, and they could not see it because they had no spiritual comprehension. They could not see the evidence before them plainly because they had not seen the light of the world. Scripture goes on to say not only is there this absence of comprehension, but again, as we read this passage, again, verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. You judge according to what you can understand in the darkness. I've been like some of you have been obviously some of you may even have more uh, personal experience with uh, family or friends that are blind there there is a certain amount of truth to the fact that the other senses are more honed when one sense is absent now this i don't it's not <laughs> i think it may be the one sense that uh, fails that because i'm i'm i am personally void of the sense of smell now you may say no i've i've smelt you before mike i'm not saying i don't smell bad sometimes badly sometimes uh, but the reality is i don't have a sense of smell i cannot detect odors now it made me very helpful that when we were raising our daughter and she was newborn and there was all those diapers my wife was glad to make sure that i knew you told me you don't smell <laughs> you can handle it <laughs> Yes, ma'am. Uh, that is until the, the night that I woke up holding my daughter. I had changed her. Yep, I woke up having changed her, gotten her out of her crib, and brought her to mom for that in, her, in the middle of the night feeding. When she realized that I was asleep and wasn't letting go of our daughter to hand off to her, she, said, she started yelling, Mike, Mike. <laughs> I, I woke up, and she said, were you asleep? I said, Yeah. <laughs> She said, well, how did you get, because she looked and there was a brand new diaper and everything was the way it should have been if I was awake. I don't know. My senses have not, my, other, my vision, obviously I'm wearing glasses, has not been honed. My hearing, you ask her again, he doesn't always hear what I'm telling him. Uh, but uh, most of the time, if you have like uh, a hearing loss or a sight loss, oftentimes because it's just a way of surviving, people's other senses become more honed. It's not that they're better. They just are more attentive to what they're receiving stimuli-wise from other senses. Well, these men were, were void of spiritual sensitivity. Now, they understood things that men understand. They, they knew when the sun went up and the sun went down. They knew what it took to, to provide a crop and they could do those things. But spiritual insight was something they were completely void of. And he says here, look with me. You judge according to the flesh. You judge based on what you know, but there's so much you don't know. You don't see. You don't understand because you do not have the light of the world within you. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two is true. So he's saying, look, you thought my approach was false, but my approach is exactly what the Bible, what the law calls for. And as such, they, <laughs> as, as he's saying to them in this moment, there's, there's this arrogance. There's an absence of comprehension, but there's an arrogance about their conclusions. Have you ever heard the statement that he's not always right, but he's never in doubt? That's the kind of attitude, spiritually, theologically, biblically, that these men had. And as such, they were showing their ignorance of spiritual things more and more as the conversation went on. They didn't even know. Now, 
Again, they had picked the wrong person to fight with theologically. But the reality is they didn't know even that. They weren't sensing that already from the get-go they were losing. Now look with me again. If we finish up in verse 19 and 20. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Now, for whatever reason, they took this, this uh, argument, this, this attestation of uh, Jesus that, hey, I do have two witnesses. My own testimony is confirmed by my father. And instead of hearing that as it was meant, they asked this question. Verse 19, where is your father? People who doubt that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin basically have two similar but they're nuanced reasons. They explain away the virgin birth and the way the scriptures talk about how Joseph was ready because he was a just man to put her away privately and not embarrass her to, to, to honestly, uh, based on what Scripture teaches us, a betrothed girl who committed adulterous behavior was to be stoned to death. And he loved her and he didn't want that. He didn't understand what was going on at first, but he didn't want that. A married woman who committed adultery, now she would be put to death, but by strangulation, not by stoning. Now here, here, listen to me. They're not saying anything new today that they weren't saying back in the first century. Because the arguments are like this, okay, where, you know, the story goes that Joseph was told by an angel that, that uh, what was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit and he should accept her, and he did, and then he became the surrogate uh, stepfather to Jesus through his earthly uh, childhood and rearing until he himself, by all indications, died before Jesus came onto the scene publicly for ministry. Now that being said, people say, well, that's probably a, kind of the New Testament church's uh, way of explaining away a difficult beginning. And we believe that a more reasonable assumption than a divine conception, an immaculate conception. By the way, Jesus is the only one who has an immaculate conception. Mary was not immaculately conceived. She is not the co-redemptress. She was a sinner just like the worst of us, in need of a Savior, just like the worst of us. But she was divinely set aside to be the mother. She found favor, not innocence, not complete purity. She found favor. God blessed her even in spite of her own humanity and fallenness. But what those scholars in this boxing match would say, and what scholars today repeat, is that likely because this was a, a, a small ethnicity in the greater Roman Empire, that it could be likely, one, that she was um, uh, raped by a Roman soldier, which was very common. Okay? Now, Joseph wasn't her father in that scenario. He might have been told, or they might have uh, arranged some story to cover up what had actually happened and said it was the Holy Spirit, and it was just a, uh, a very brutal Roman soldier, angry that he was on the backside of nowhere in Palestine, serving away from his family and away from everything he had known, and he just took it out on this young girl. Well, let me just share with you the problem with that is, if Jesus Christ was conceived by a Roman soldier and a Jewish girl, then he's a man just like the rest of us, and he could not die for the sins of the world. And we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and we are without hope. The other is that actually Joseph was the father, but they covered that up and changed the details to make it seem again like a divine intervention and this conception happened by, by fiat, by a holy God. Again, 
if that were the case, that, Dave, that, excuse me, that Joseph and Mary, as betrothed, engaged couple, they knew their matrimony was coming close and they were just so in love and so excited that something happened one night and then she was pregnant. Guess what? The nuance is all that's the difference. Because if Joseph was the father and Mary was the mother, he's still just a man like you and me. And we're without hope, without help, and we need to close this word, go home, and never return again. That's how big a deal it is that Jesus is the virgin born. Who is your father? Where is your father? It was a catty, sarcastic insult because there were already questions about who he was. But we know who he is. He's revealed himself. He's the light of the world, and he knew where he came from and where he was going. Where was he going? Not only did he come from heaven, humbled himself, as Paul would later write in the New Testament hymn in Philippians chapter 2, that he, regarding equality with God, not something to be held on to or grasped tightly, but humbled himself and became a servant, taking on the form of man even to the point of the cross. Let me just tell you, friends, Jesus Christ knew exactly where he came from and where he was going. He was going to the cross so that you and I would be able to receive the light of the world. That our lives would be transformed by the truth that is Jesus Christ. Now look with me. It says there, the, in verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury, in the, the place where, you remember he saw the, the poor woman dropping the mites when other people had come by and, and given much more money, but he commended her giving? It was right there at that same area that he said these words to these men. This, this boxing match was happening, so to speak. As he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. You see, the one who knew where he was from and why he had come here from there knew where he was going and knew that he could speak as boldly and plainly as any necessity demanded because until it was time, no one could lay hands on him. You say, well, that's Jesus. I mean, he came. I mean, there's nobody been ever before like him and never since then. You're absolutely right. But let me just share with you something. While we are none of us the Savior, we are all fallen creatures being restored by the Spirit of God that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I have a lesson to learn here in verse 20. We need to live so intentionally, so passionately for the cause of Christ that we're unafraid, unashamed, and unfettered to speak truth even into a world that is darkened in their understanding, that is diabolical in its intent, and will never, never, never agree with us about who he is unless they too come by faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, if I do that, I'm going to rankle a lot of feathers, yes? And, and, and that's going to rub the cat the wrong way. As an old evangelist said, well, if the cat turns around, it'll be the right way. <laughs> Y'all have been so gracious these last couple of weeks to just keep asking me. Some have uh, caught me in the halls. Some have texted me. Some just in conversation asking about the new baby. John Luke, we love him. You know, as I said earlier, if I was any happier, I'd be two people. I mean, we're just very, very pleased with this young grandson. Let me tell you something. I am as confident as I've ever been in the saving, transforming power of the gospel. I believe Jesus Christ 
And the truth that is Jesus Christ can change any heart. Will it change every heart? Absolutely not. Scripture clearly says that the way is narrow and few there are that find it in comparison to the broad road that many go down. I understand the percentages, but I don't know who is and who isn't going to receive Jesus Christ. So when I share the gospel with someone individually, let me just share with you, I am totally confident. You know, people have questioned it over the last several de- couple of decades, especially even within the Southern Baptist Convention, but let me share it with you. When I was a young college student, first year at Union University, I went through what was called Continuous Witness Training, CWT. We joked that that was the Baptist version of EE. (laughs) And it really was because the first edition of EE did not really emphasize repentance. And Dr. D. James Kennedy went back and revised that, but it was really at the unction or the... the, um, impress of Southern Baptist leaders about the materials that caused him to review and, and then renew that. Well, that's the land, yeah, a little extra, no extra cost. But here's the thing. As a young boy, just starting in college, I learned how to share Christ. And I'm telling you, it, it revolutionized my life. I remember walking into a four-unit apartment building in a rather transitional part of Jackson, Tennessee, on one Tuesday night, because that was the night we were trained, and we would come in, and we would repeat the verses that we had learned up to that point. And our leader, we'd team up with two trainees and one leader. We'd go out, and, and our leader was always the one that would, would start the conversation. But the more we got into the training, the more weeks we were there, the more we would do. And we'd do the first part of the introduction, and then the leader would step in. And then Then we'd do the first part of the presentation, and then they would step in to close it out. And then we finally got to where we could close it out. It was was just lifting because I remember the night. It was about week eight or nine, later into the course. And it was my turn to go through the entire presentation. Now, let me tell you, I don't do it well now, but I did not do it. I was... I was, uh, (laughs) it was a a horrible effort. And I got to the point where I was supposed to ask, would you like, having heard that, do you understand what I've said? And and this person across from me, a middle-aged gentleman, looked at me and he said, yes, I would. I was like, you would? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I messed this up. You know, I, I obviously didn't say that, but my mind was racing. And I said, okay. And with just a little bit of prompting from the leader, I went on and shared just here's what we're going to do. Here's how you can receive Christ. And that man prayed and received Christ. Now, folks, I remember December 4th, 1974. When a a six-and-a-half-year-old little boy walked down an aisle at a little church called Lincoln Heights Baptist Church in a small town in southern middle Tennessee, and I gave my heart to Christ, it was the most glorious moment I've ever known. But a close comparison comes when I, one-on-one, share the light of the world with a person who I can even at times see in their eyes, in their demeanor, in their responses, they are living in darkness. And when we share the wonderful, gracious gospel of the light of the world, and they say yes, oh, it is revolutionary. I want to tell you, there's nothing more important you'll do today, this week, this month, this year, then share with another individual the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what what, what if they don't receive it? They may not. The percentages are that most people are not going to just immediately jump. It may be that you have to build it and share it a few times with a person before they come to know Christ, even if they do. But let me share with you. You and I need to live in light of eternity. We need to understand one day we're going to go where we 
are intended to go by Christ. He's going to receive us unto himself. We're going to finish this race. And we are going to stand before him. And let me tell you, every other thing that we've done will not matter at all. But what we've done with Jesus Christ will matter immensely, profoundly. No, you and I are not going to get into heaven based on what we do. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you're going to heaven. But the crowns we receive and those that we're then able to lay down at his feet in glory and honor to him are much dependent upon our faithful obedience to what he's called us to do. And he's told us to live like he lived, knowing where we're going. If you know where you're going, then tell as many people as you can about the one who enlightened you, who transformed your life, who saved you, so that they can know that same light, that same salvation. Let's pray. Father, tonight, as this boxing match opens up, round one has been full of intentional sparring. But you are the one who knew where you came from and where you were going and all that was ever on your mind is that you came to seek and to save that which was lost. As the light of the world, you couldn't do anything else. You had to expose the opportunity, the gospel, the good news of a loving Father who receives sinful men through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. Father, I pray tonight that as we consider the calling upon our lives, to follow you. We would, we would even, even as we consider that, Father, we'd be reminded that you are already providing light for us to follow in so that we will not walk in darkness. Father, I pray that I and every person in this room this week, this very week, will lean into the light we have been given in Jesus Christ and allow Him to speak through us the life-changing message of the gospel to those around us. Father, I pray even now that you would re remind us of those people in our daily path that you've placed on our heart, that you've, you've told us those are the folks you need to be reaching out to with the gospel. Father, give us opportunities for those individuals. Let us share clearly, boldly, confidently, expectant of your gracious work with them this week. For it's in Christ's name we pray it. Amen.